Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Anyways, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll get started here and see how far we get. Actually, we've got to get through the rest of this book here, and so we start 1 Thessalonians, or yeah, 1 Thessalonians chapter 6. It's actually 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We've got three classes after this to get through all this stuff. Father, thank you for this day of study, and we thank you for your grace to us next, that you'd open our hearts to the truth here, and we just thank you for your provision in Christ's name. Amen. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul picks up where he left off discussing the return of Christ to talk about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And uh, we work through all the different reps or positions and all that other kind of stuff. And uh, no matter where you land on that, um, it's almost universally accepted that the rapture comes first and then you have the day of the Lord, whatever that would be, the day of the Lord. Um, now, if you're a pre-tribulationist, of course, the day of the Lord includes the tribulation. If you're a pre-wrath person, the day of the Lord is just the last half of the last half of the tribulation, all those things. But there's really little disagreement that the rapture comes before the day of the Lord. And what Paul has to do with the Thessalonian um, Christians here, the problem they're facing, is that they thought they were in the day of the Lord. Now, why would they think they were in that day of the Lord? Why would, what would cause them... The persecution, right. And I think all you need to do is go back to Matthew 24. We talked about the persecutions that are going to be faced where Christ is saying um, you're going to be delivered up and you're going to be treated um, badly by everybody for my name's sake and on. And they are thinking, well, if we're going through this persecution, that means we must have missed something. Because if that persecution is in the day of the Lord, then we miss this, the rapture, and we must be in the day of the Lord. Now, I, I listened at, at length to the pre-wrath crew who wants to say, well, you've got to understand that we go partway through the tribulation. We're taken out just prior to the last half of the last half and all that stuff, and we're going to suffer persecution and everything. And I'm thinking, well, if, if the Thessalonian believers knew that they were going to suffer persecution, why were they so upset? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, they were saying that Matthew 24, of course, they say speaks to the church. They say since it says that we're going to be persecuted there, obviously we're going to face that time of trial. And then I read 1 Thessalonians, and these people are upset, thinking, well, if we're in the persecution, we missed the rapture and the day of the Lord. It seemed to me that they at least understood that they weren't supposed to be persecuted as part of the Matthew 24 day of the Lord. In other words, the events of Matthew 24 were not for them, but were for another audience. Um, that's the way I understand it. Now, they'll do backflips and handsprings, the pre-wrath crew, to say that's not the case. And they like to use this passage here, and they just reinterpret it the completely opposite way of what I would do. I would just say that these people were really upset because they were suffering persecution, so to them, we missed it. We're in the day of the Lord. Something happened. Paul writes in verse 1 of chapter 5, "...but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren..." You have no need that I should write unto you. The times and the seasons are just two words to refer to the specific times and the eras. 
It's, it's two sides of the same coin, the time, this coin, the times and the eras, the epochs. You don't need me to write unto you. Why not? Why wouldn't they have needed to write unto them about that? That's right. No one knew. There's, what is there to write? What is there to write about the day of the Lord or the timing of the day of the Lord, the timing of Christ's return? There is nothing. There is nothing because the Bible didn't tell us anything about that. It gave us some generalities regarding what times would be like, but as far as the specific time, no way. Um, just as an aside, I was listening on the same set of tapes from the pre-wrath people. Who This is a conference they had. Um, they were saying the disciples in Matthew 24 understood that Christ was going to go away for a long time, and they wanted to know when he'd be back. And I'm sitting here thinking, they didn't know that. I mean, what did, what's the first thing they asked him when he rose again from the dead? One of the first things, Acts 1. Is, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? They had no idea he was going to be gone for this amount of time. There was no concept in that. They were looking for the kingdom. They were looking for the millennial reign. And what did Christ tell them when they asked that? Times are the season. Same words. Absolutely, the same words. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has reserved for himself. There is nothing to write. It's like, uh, it's interesting, I was talking to my guy I work for, and we were talking about the seven thunders in Revelation. Remember there were seven thunders, and John was about ready to write it down, and God said, no, don't write that down. You know how many people try to figure out what the seven thunders are? We don't know. No, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know what they are. They're not there. All right, so... No, but it's interesting enough that, as you said in Acts 1, the apostles didn't know that Christ was going to go away. Mm -mm. But yet, when he left, they accommodated extremely easy, as it seems in Acts, to the fact, okay, he left, now we're supposed to continue to do our job. Right. So they immediately chose another person. Matthias, or, Matthias. yeah, Matthias. And then they got on with it, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's amazing. It's amazing. They had no idea that he was going to go away. They thought that he was going to remain with them forever from now on. Yeah. But then they, when they saw him leave, they immediately recuperated. That. Right. And and I think there, did they have a full understanding of all that was going to happen? You know, the rapture and all that. No, they didn't. <coughs> that was something that God revealed over a period of time. Um, all they knew is God told them. To, do, to preach the gospel. You'll be witness to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other most part of the earth. And they always looked for him to come back. They lived in the expectancy of his return. Now, I read another article by the pre-wrath crew that says, look, the Charlie church never taught the imminent return of Christ. They never believed it. I'm sitting there thinking, wow, you know, where did they get that? I mean, that, that was the expectancy. I mean, I look at Paul here and saying, we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, it seemed that he at least thought that maybe he'd be alive. He didn't say, well, you know, after all of the signs and all that, then. No, they, they, they were we who are alive and remain. Um, I, I, really, I really have trouble with their, their hermeneutic. But he says, there's nothing to write because we're not told anything. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. What's what's the idea? Now, see, that's another interesting thing. What's the thief in the night? What's that a picture of? Unexpected. 
And, and I have to ask the question, well, if the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, then why are you telling me that all of the signs have to occur before the day of the Lord? I mean, if that's the case, then you figured out what the day of the Lord is. Let me, let me see if I can explain that, what I just said. My, my brain's a little fuzzy. I've got a little bit of a cold or something, so if I spout nonsense, you'll understand. Let's, let's, let's look at this thing. Here, here we got the tribulational period, seven years. All right, that's the tribulation. Now, it says here, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Okay, well, let's say the pre-wrath crew is, is right, and that the day of the Lord only refers to this period of time here. The last half of the last half. Is that a thief in the night? No, because all i got to do is check out the signs. When the signs happen, bang, there it is. I know it. There's no thief in the night. The, the, the uncertainty is removed. Yeah, but they could pinpoint it down. Right? They could say that, well, we don't know the exact date. Well, what they say is when you see the signs and the sun, the moon, and the stars, the sun black, and the moon does not give us light, etc., day of the Lord, bang, you're there. I mean, that, that's pretty... I mean, that's pretty precise. I mean, yeah, you don't know when those signs occur, but, you know, if, I, if I'm a Christian and I'm alive during this time and I see this stuff happening, what, what, I mean, I can get it pretty close. I can figure out pretty close when that is. No, you're not, you're not, you know, you don't got the exact day down, but, I mean, you could be pretty close as to when, when that's going to happen. Or at least you can be sure that it won't happen since the signs have happened. Yeah. Which removes the, surprise, the element of surprise. I mean, if, you, if you're telling me the day of the Lord does not come except all of these things have to pass, then it's not a thief in the night. That doesn't make sense. I'll tell you what makes sense. What makes sense is if this here is the day of the Lord, which I think it is. What is that? The whole tribulation and the millennium. If that's the day of the Lord, it's a thief in the night. I don't know when this happens. My understanding is that the day of the Lord, in a pure sense, is the day of the rapture. Um, and then it begins the reign of the Lord. For a time of the Lord. Well, the day of the Lord is a day when God moves in judgment. I mean, right. you see that throughout. And, and, and they will agree, the pre-wrath crew will, will agree, absolutely, the day of the Lord, um, the rapture occurs before the day of the Lord. What they don't agree on is what is the day of the Lord. They say, this is only the day of the Lord, not this. Now, there's an easy way to prove that, and I have a whole tape on them trying to spout off that this is the day of the Lord. There's a couple of questions I would have for them. Number one, in Isaiah 13 and 14, you see an, you see an historical day of the Lord when um, the Babylonian Empire was destroyed by the Medo-Persians. That was the day of the Lord. It even says the day of the Lord is come, and it talks about the Medes and the Persians beating up on the Babylonians. Also, in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 3, a day of the Lord is when the elements melt with fervent heat, the earth and all the works in it will be burned up. And we look for a new heaven and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. When does that happen? After the millennium, right? That's when the earth, that's when the universe is dissolved and we have a new heaven and new earth, right? Revelation 21. And I, John, saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and first earth were passed away. That's at the end of the millennium. So that day of the Lord is at the end of the millennium. So I, I, really, I really have trouble when I try to nail this down to just this. Now, I tell you what it does say, the great and terrible day of the Lord has come. That is a great and terrible day of the Lord. I mean, that's an intensified time, 
but I think the whole thing is the day of the Lord. If it's not, that verse doesn't make any sense where it says Christ comes as a thief because I'd be able to time it down pretty precisely. Or I could at least say, well, the thief ain't going to show up until all of these signs come about. So I've removed the element of surprise. There is no element of surprise. But it says here, the day of the Lord so comes as the thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. What is the characteristic of this time right before the rapture? What's the characteristic of this time? It's normal. What else is it? I mean, you see pre-signs, you know, wars, rumors of wars, etc. But, but, but generally on the earth, what, what will be the general circumstances? Business as usual. According to this, what will it be? Peace and safety. Um, it'll be a time of great, uh, it's almost the time when, yeah, prosperity. It'll be a time of great prosperity. A time of peace. They're not looking. The last thing they expect is God to show up and bring judgment. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. It's unexpected because the conditions don't call for judgment. It's a time of great prosperity. And then all of a sudden, bang, in comes God. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. One moment she's fine, the next moment she's having labor pains. And that's the same picture here. And it's interesting, the picture of labor pains, Christ also uses this in Matthew 24 to talk about this time. And, he's, and the thing about labor pains is they start out and they have a certain interval, but they get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and more intense. And that's just like what's happening in the tribulation, God's judgments are coming closer and closer and more intense, more intense, more intense, until bang, it's all over. And that's the picture that he uses here. And it says, they shall not escape. They won't get away. Who's, who doesn't get away? They. There's a difference between they and we. All right? They will not get away. Whoever is, is facing this day of the Lord, they won't get away from the judgments of God. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. You're not in darkness, but you're in light. And the contrast here is between darkness and light. And I think the darkness refers not only to moral darkness, but ignorance. We're children of the light. It says here, we are children of light, not children of dark. We're children of the day. Um, let me get to my... When you look at light in the New Testament, for example, light is a picture of the revelation of God's truth to those in darkness. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Remember John? Um, light is a description of the character of the kingdom citizen. Let your light so shine before men, I mean, so they can see you. Um, light is a general description of a believer who is called a child of the light. Luke 16, John 12, 1 Corinthians 6. Christ said, I'm the light of the world. Light is a picture of spiritual truth. 
John 3.19. Light is used to refer to the effect of the gospel has on a believer. The light shines in their hearts. And the Lamb is going to be the light of the New Jerusalem. God Himself will be the light. So light is always the picture of, of divine understanding, illumination, knowledge. And darkness is the exact opposite. It says those who are lost, they're in darkness. You are a child of darkness. Um, Matthew 4.16 talks about those who are in darkness. Darkness is used to describe the eternal state of the lost. In outer darkness, there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Satan's kingdom is the kingdom of darkness. He's translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians tells us. It's the character of the unbeliever who is in darkness and it refers to spiritual ignorance and belief and unbelief. And what you see in chapter 4 here, or chapter 5, verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you. You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. The character of the believer is not that of darkness. We're not of that day that it should overtake us as a thief. All right? Why? Because we have a general idea that God is coming. The world out there, are they, are they looking for Christ to show up? No, we are. So that day is not going to overtake us as a thief, but it's going to catch all of them totally unaware and off guard when he comes back. It's going to be sudden. They're not going to be ready for it. Remember Christ in Matthew 24 talks about if the householder had known what hour the thief would break in, he would not have allowed himself to be robbed. We don't know. And our nature is different. And I think that's important. Our nature, the reason we're not going to be overtaken by that day is because our nature is different than the unbeliever. We are children of light. And then verse 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The idea of watch and be sober is watch and alert, not sleepy. Um, who does the sleeping? The world. And this has the idea of, them, of spiritual insensitivity. They're just not awake. They don't know what's going on. Our character is that we are children of light. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The, the unbeliever is living their entire life in spiritual darkness, totally unaware of what's going on. We're not like that. What is the day of the Lord for? It's for the unbeliever. We're not in the day of the Lord. I mean, wherever rapture position you fall into, unless you're a post-tribber, you're not going to be in the day of the Lord. That's not for you. It's not for me. We're children of light, not children of the night. The character of those who are at night is they are drunk, are drunk at night. They sleep, they sleep at night. That's their character. We're not of that. What are we to do? Verse 8, we're to be sober. The idea of sober is to be alert. Alert. Not asleep. And we're to have on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's interesting there. Um, you might want to do this sometime. This is, this is one of the other times that Paul uses faith, hope, and love. 
Interesting. Where else did he use that? 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, love. 1 Thessalonians 1. Faith, hope, love. Faith, hope, love. All right. Um, what you, the, the, these words go together. And what is it that we're to have on? Well, the breastplate of faith and love. Faith in what? God. Believe God. Love is action. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And again, the idea of hope there is not, well, you know, maybe if I'm lucky, it'll work out. You know, if, if, if nothing happens, it'll work out. It's a certainty. It's a certainty. It's, it's, a, it's a present expectation of a future reality is what hope is. A present expectation of a future reality. And Paul says we're to have that on. Now, if we go back over to Ephesians chapter 6, we also read the helmet of salvation, which is, which is something that we are to have on. And, and the helmet protects the head area. It's a very vital piece of, of armor for the Roman soldier. And it protected him from the blows of the enemy. What does Satan try to do? What, what's his blows take the form of? What's Satan's blows usually take the form of? Different ideas. Of the mind. And how did he attack Eve? Yes. You sure God said that? I was there and I don't remember him saying that. Um, it's doubt. And how do you protect from doubt? The hope of salvation. And the breastplate of faith. Now, now don't, don't read too much into this and go off the deep end. He's just using a metaphor. The two major pieces of armor for a Roman soldier was the, was the helmet and the breastplate that protected the vital area. Yeah, the whole area there. And he's saying we're protected with faith and hope and love. And that's the character of the believer. And that, that back in 1 Thessalonians 1, that is the marks. Remember, that was the mark of those who are true believers. How do I know that you're elect? How do I know that? Well, I look at your life. I don't see the E on you, but I do see your labor of love. I do see your faith, your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. I see all those things. I don't see the E, but I see your actions. And Paul is saying there, we are of the day. We have faith, hope, and love. We're not going to be caught off guard because we know what's ahead for us. And so the, for them to think that, well, we're in, this, uh, we're, we're in the, the, the day of the Lord. Uh, we, we missed the rapture. We missed everything, and we're in it. Paul says, no, you're not of the night. You're of the day. You're not going to be in that day. Verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Now, the pre-wrath crew say, well, see, that's what it's, that proves it right there. It says, God's not appointed us to His wrath when He pours out His wrath in the day of the Lord. I think there's a dual aspect to this wrath. I think, number one, it is a wrath in the day of the Lord, but what wrath am I ultimately saved from? Eternal wrath. And I think that's what Paul has in mind for the most part, because he said, He did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. From what? Well, they say day of the Lord, but I think this is eternal salvation. It's not just the day of the Lord. I think he's looking eternally ahead. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Who's the waker and the sleeping? Well, it's the ones who are alive or dead. It's not the ones who sleep as in sleep in verse 6. That's not different sleep. All right. The believer are those who, when you die, you go to sleep. All right. And I think what he's saying there is whether, whether we're alive or dead when Christ shows up, we're going to obtain salvation together with him. We're not of this time. We're not of the time of God's wrath, the time of the day of the Lord. That's not where we're destined for. So for you to think that somehow you missed it all and you're in it and you're, no, 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 don't do that. Don't, don't think you're in the day of the Lord. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as also you are doing. Comfort one another. About what? You're not in the day of the Lord. Comfort one another. Are you going to suffer persecutions? Well, yeah, but that's not the day of the Lord. Persecution. Comfort one another. And this goes back to verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4, wherefore comfort one another with these words. It's not only comforting for us to know of the rapture, but also that we're not part of the day of the Lord. We can comfort one another. Because that's not for us. In verse 12, Paul turns to uh, exhortations regarding life in the church. Very fascinating um, what we have here. He talks to the leaders of the church and he talks to the people of the church. And he says, until I come, this is how I want you to behave in the church. This is just, he's closing the letter, he's winding it up. And he says, I want you, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, that's the church in general people in the church. We want you to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. How, how does a church pick leaders? Yeah, that's unfortunately that's the way it is now. How should they pick leaders? Who's laboring out there? Who, who, who are the ones that are working? They're the leaders. <clears throat> that's what he's saying here, to recognize those who labor among you. I, I think, this is just me talking here, but I, I think that I have support for this. How do you pick out the leader? Well, you recognize leadership. You're a leader before you actually are recognized and given the title. You know, a lot of people say, well, elect me to the leadership, then I'll do something. No, do something. And then leadership is recognized. And I think that's what it says here. Recognize those who labor. So as a pastor or as a leader in the church, what is it that you're to do in the church? And, and I see three things in this, this passage here. Number one is you labor. What's that mean? You work. How do you labor? Well, you know, you have to go out and, you know, tend the sheep and make sure, you know, they got problems or, you know, comfort them and, you know, the, the, the general work of the pastor. You labor. Um, the pastor has a lot of people he needs to labor for. And the labor there has the idea of hard work, exhaustion. It's not something you do in your spare time. It's a lifelong pursuit. You labor. And those who labor among them are to be recognized and are over you in the Lord. What is that? 
Well, that's leadership. They are stand before, they lead the flock and admonish you. That's basically what they do. What's admonish? Yes, yeah, to come in and to point out those things that, that need to be corrected. Maybe uh, deal with sin or discipline issues. Give advice. I think also, going back to this over you and the Lord, I think the leader needs to recognize who are they really serving. Yeah. It's not your flock, it's God's flock. He just wants you to tend it for Him. That's the whole idea there. Um, if not, you can get yourself in real trouble. It's God's flock. And what are we to do for those who are leaders? What was the church to do for those who did this kind of activity? They would esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. There's to be respect. I will tell you, I will, I will stand up here and I will tell you, and if I got Dr. Walls in here as the pastor of our church and he were to stand here, he would tell you the same thing, that the worst spot to be in in a church is a senior pastor because nobody respects you. Nobody. Um, nobody. I've heard people on staff here at times say things that if I would have said the same thing in my place of employment, I would have been fired and out the door. I wouldn't have made it back to my desk. No respect. It doesn't mean you agree with them. It means you respect them. He said, I want you to esteem them very highly. Why is that? Who are they serving? Yeah, and when you respect them, who are you respecting? The Lord. And when you disrespect them, who are you slapping in the face? The Lord. Serious thing. Serious thing here. I look at churches today, and one of the, one of the hardest things is the pastor who is just kicked around all over the place. You guys know that. You, and you've been there. Yeah, you, you, you know what it's like to be in leadership. Nobody likes you. Everybody's mad because, well, you know, you, you want to do it my way. And it's just whining and crying and sniveling. And... I think Satan has a heyday. In fact, from their point of view, I'm also a boss at work. Mm -hmm. I have to fall under some Right. You know, I never had those kind of problems as a boss. Yeah, you know why? You know why? Well, I think part of the reason is, is in, is in the church, I don't get a paycheck for coming here and listening to the pastor. So what? If you don't like it, I'll go. If I, if I can't do it here, I'll go down to Willie's church and terrorize him. And if that doesn't work, I'll go over to Arnett and make him miserable. You know, I'll just go to a different church. I really think, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I really think People need to learn to respect those in, that, that serve the Lord. You need to respect them. You, it doesn't mean you agree with them all the time. You respect them because they labor among you in the Lord. And when you buck their leadership, you're bucking God's leadership. God is very serious about that. Pardon? Yeah. I think, and now I've seen a lot of pastors, I think that the way a pastor is leading the church 
is mainly a function of the way eating themselves. Mm -hmm. There's pastors out there that they just go to me and be like, you know, I'm so glad that you're in my church. What can I do to make you happy? You know? Oh, anything. You want me to wake up in the middle of the night? Da, 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 da. They just go overboard and they don't respect themselves. They don't respect their family. And then the members go like, you know what? He's a kicking ball. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen other kind of pastors who are full leaders and act like they're the boss of the church. They run the church. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about the ones that go overboard as yeah. dictators, but I'm talking people who have self-respect. I was at a pastor's house once, and it was late in the night, and somebody called him for some stupid Halloween and said, look, unless it's an emergency, you're going to have to call me back tomorrow. You know, and they hung up the phone, and the church respected him. Yeah. A lot of them didn't think that he was a loving pastor, but at least the guy didn't live in, in, in constant terror. Mm -hmm. I, I think this goes... I think what, what Paul is hitting at here is when you look at a church where Satan wants to attack it, he wants to split it and divide it and splinter it. And the way he can do that is to get people upset at the pastor, the leadership. And that's very successful. It's worked very well for the Satan throughout the years. And I think that we need to be really... I think as, as people in the church, we, we shouldn't be part of that. I've had people come to me and saying, uh, saying things about our pastors, not only Pastor Walls, but other pastors. And, you know, I say, well, have you talked to that person? No, I haven't done that. Well, don't talk to me. Why, why are you talking to me? I can't do anything about it. How many pastors do you have here? About 11 or 12. Here? Yeah. How many members? 2,000 or something like that. You need, you need it. I forget, how many, I forget how many there are. There's, there's seven or eight full-time. Full yeah, there's... There's about, I think there's about 12, if I'm not mistaken. I have to, I have to count them all. <coughs> but I think there's a respect that goes to leadership that people don't have anymore. And it's not only in the church, it's in society. You know, people just don't have respect. And it says here, you esteem them highly in love for their work's sake. For what they do, you respect them. And then here's the other thing, be at peace among yourselves. Now, why does he throw that in? I'll tell you how to make the pastor stay up at night, fight with somebody else in the church. Really? Um, don't get. I'm just amazed at how how Christians just don't get along. We should be getting along with one another. You know, and I, I remember Yodi and Seneki. I I beseech you, get together in the Lord. What are you doing? Fighting and scrapping and. What is that? Yeah. Well, I, th I think what happens is, as Christians, we have a big ego. You know, if the pastor doesn't do it our way, we're mad at him. Who says your way is the right way? Or the only way? That's ego. You know, that's just, I want my way in the church. If I don't get my way, I'm going to take my ball and go home. And that's what people do. Yeah, little kids. It's like little snotty-nosed kids on the playground. If they don't play my own way, I'm taking my bum and go home. You know, that's what people do. Well, I'll go down to the next church, you know, and then they just take their problems with them. Nothing's ever really solved. But Paul says, I want you to get along. And then in verse 14, he turns around and talks to the leadership. And I exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. You've got five classes of people here that you have to deal with in a church. And if you're in a church, you're going to have 
all five of these people somewhere in your church. Number one, he says, I want you to warn the unruly. The unruly. Okay. Idle? Yeah. The, well, the unruly, this is a fascinating thing. Um, the word behind unruly is a tactos. And it has the idea of out of step, marching out of step. It's a soldier who marches out of step in a rank. Um, it was also used of an apprentice who was bound over to like to learn a trade. And instead of learning the trade, he went fishing for the day. It was used in no, that's how it used it back in there. Unruly, the person who, who knows what is right and just doesn't do it. Amen. Rebellious. You have those in your church? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What are you to do? Warn them. About what? About God's going to, you know, you're not going to get away with that. Warn the unruly. Comfort the faint hearted. Comfort the faint hearted. The faint hearted, they're um, feeble minded. They're warriors. The, lack, the, the people who lack faith. Here's the warriors. Worry ors. I can't even pr pronounce, I can't even spell it. The warriors. These are the people who are always worried about everything. My grandmother was that. My grandmother was a warrior. I mean, I mean, no matter what happens, there's something wrong. Oh, it'll never work. It'll never work. Um, pastor, just it ain't gonna work. It ain't gonna work. It's not gonna happen. Pastor, I, I just can't. I just can't help myself. I just can't. It's just not gonna happen. You know, you got those in your church. Absolutely, the warriors. The another word we would hear could be fearful. Pastor, you know, we've never done it that way before. It's, it's bound to fail. Yeah, but sometimes with these kind of people, here it says comfort them or encourage them. That's right. Well, I think the idea of... Sometimes you've got to come along and you've got you to say, look, you know, it's going to work out. Everything will be okay. You know, don't worry so much. It's hard to do that, but sometimes you've got to comfort them. And I think that's what Paul's getting here. Come alongside and help those who are afraid, the faint-hearted, the people who think they're not going to make it. You know, this is the people come in and they're doubting their salvation for the 900th time this week. You know, uh, it's, it's tough. They, they're a drain on you, the warriors. What are you to do with them? Well, you're to comfort them, encourage them. And then what do you do? There's the other one. There's the weak. Who are these people? Well, they're the ones that are always falling into sin. No matter, you know, they, they, they confess their sin, and next thing you know, they're back in it again. And it just, they're always, they're always digging themselves out of, out of sin or out of a problem. What are you to do? You're uphold them. Uphold the weak. The weak one is the ones who, who they're, they're different than the unruly. The weak know what, they, what is right, and they want to do it. They just... Keep flubbing up. These people know what's right, and they just don't care. All right. So there's a very different response. You warn these people. You hold up and lift up these people. You help them get back up on their feet. When they fall back into sin, you get them out of the mud. You clean them off, set them back on their feet, only knowing that next week they're going to fall back into the mud. And you're going to be through the same thing. 
you uphold the weak in a church. Those who, who just, they want to do right, and, they, and they, just, they just can't. And I think that's what the Galatians 6, um, those of you who are overtaken in a fault, restore him. What do we do in the church when somebody sins? Off with their head. Off with their head. I've seen that happen here. We had a pastor who fell into some moral problems. Lost his job here. What was people's response? We want a public beheading on the platform next Sunday. But he repented. That doesn't matter. We want, him, we, we want our pound of flesh. No forgiveness. No, no. What am I to do? I'm to uphold the weak. I'm to help him up. I'm helping get back on his feet. I'll tell you what, I'm glad that Christ upholds the weak. Because I'd be in deep trouble if he didn't, right? I mean, compared to Christ, we're all weak. We're all warriors and we're all unruly. Now, how'd you like it if he said, okay, one more time, you've had it? No, we're to uphold those. And then it says here, be patient towards all men. I see another group there. And I guess um, I like John MacArthur's term for it, the wearisome. Who's the wearisome? The wearisome are people who sit in your pew and listen to you preach for five years and don't get it. You have those? They learn and learn and learn, and they, they never seem to catch on to what you're trying to say. They never seem to get going anywhere spiritually. They, they, they just... Yeah, I, I know what this is like. I taught a singles and harmony class. I call it disharmony once in a while, but singles and harmony. I taught a singles class for, for I, don't know, I don't know how many years I taught that thing. It must have been seven or eight years. And at the end of it, I had people that were still sleeping together. They didn't catch on to what was being said. They didn't catch it. You know, and you want to say, have you caught on to what I'm trying to teach? Not me, but the Word of God. You catch on to the Bible yet? I mean, there are people that you just... You know, you preach and you preach and you preach and over the head. What do you be with them? Patient. Okay, let's go over it one more time. Be patient. I'll tell you what, I'm glad, God, I'm glad God's patient with me. I really am glad He's patient with me. And then here it says, See that no one evil renders evil for evil to anyone. Who's that? That's the downright bad. They're the people that come in and are just plain evil. What do you do with them? Don't allow them to get away with it. Don't allow them to get away. Don't allow anybody to come into your church and, and cause trouble and be just plain wicked. But always pursue what is good for both yourselves and all. Don't let somebody get away with it. These are the people you have in your church. And, and as a leader, you've got, to, you've got to act differently towards each of these different groups. You can't just act one way. You know, some people, no matter what the problem is, you know, they just want to kick you around. You know, their idea is they, they, they warn everybody. Well, you can't do that. Because God doesn't do that, right? If, you're, if, you, if you live obstinate, in obstinate rebellion against God, what does He do? He brings out the big boards. All right, but if you're if you're struggling as a believer, trying honestly to do what is right, God doesn't beat you up every time you fall. He picks you up and cleans you off. And let's try this again. 
God reserves His warnings and chastisement for those who are rebellious and won't do what is right. And then there's a whole series of things in verses 16 through 28. Rejoice always. What does that mean? Rejoice always. I mean, duh. I mean, look what it says. Have joy all the time. Now, why, why, do, you need, why do you think Paul had to tell them that? They weren't, right? And how I weren't they? Yeah, according to them, they were, they were persecuted. I'll tell you what, when you're persecuted, what's the, what can go away? Your joy. You grumble, you gripe, you complain. To who? To others and to God. God, why are you doing this? What's going on? Come on. It's not supposed to happen to me. No, rejoice in everything. Pray without ceasing. Does that mean you're always praying? You're always in an attitude of prayer. What's the, can you explain, expand on the difference? I mean, I know where you pray. What's the attitude of prayer? How can you? I think the attitude of prayer is, I use it this way. Um, who gets their prayers heard? What kind of person? Sincere, humble, persistent, and holy, right? If you have a whole cartload of sin in your life, can you go to God at any time and have a vibrant, strong relationship? No, you got to deal with the sin first, right? you got, you got to get that out first. I, I sort of remember the, the example of Nehemiah. If you look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2, he talks about how he's burdened for Israel, for Jerusalem. And then the day came when the king asked him, okay, what are you sad about? And he just whispered something in prayer, Lord, give me the words. Then he, now most of us have to sit down and say, wait a minute, I've got to go for a prayer meeting, I'll be back. You know, and you got, we've got to go through our whole, all, all the sins we've done and all that stuff and get cleaned up before we can go to the Lord. I think that's what it's talking about, being always ready and prepared that you can go in the presence of the Lord any time. I think that's what he means there, being an attitude constantly of prayer. And I also think the idea of pray without ceasing is when you're facing a question or trial in life, ask God for help. I mean, just, okay, Lord, what, what, what do you want me to do here? And that's wisdom. Then in everything, give thanks. One of the most, I think one of the biggest sins Christians face is they are just plain ungrateful. They're not happy about anything. God's not done enough for them. You ever go to God and say, you know, I don't want anything from you. I just want to thank you for what you've done. That's being thankful in everything. Give thanks. Why is it? It's the will of God. You want to know what God's will is? Be thankful. If you're not thankful, are you in the will of God? No. It's the will of God. Do not quench the Spirit. How do you quench the Spirit? Out of the will of God, sin, rebellion, Griping, whining, complaining. You quench the Spirit. It just means to douse the power of the Spirit. And it says, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. I think 20 through 22 all go together. Um, do not um, despise prophecies. What's, the, what's a prophecy there? Preaching. It's not a forth, foretelling as much as a sermon. Don't ignore the sermons. Don't ignore the Word of God. And what are you to do with it? What do you do with that Word of God? Test it. 
test it. How do you test it? Well, with what the Word says. Somebody comes up to you and gives you a message, what do you do? You test it with the Word of God, and that which is good, what do you do? And what is wrong, what do you do? Get rid of it. Abstain from all appearance of evil. I think this is talking about spiritual discernment. And I have to say that we live in a church today that is 100% undiscerning about everything. They are the dumbest, I've seen the dumbest Christians in the world are in the church today. No sense. Somebody comes along and spouts some absolute nonsense and they believe it because they use God and Jesus and the Bible and all of that stuff and they just buy it. And you ask them, well, what's the Bible say about that? Well, I don't know, but there must be a verse somewhere. <laughs> be discerning. Be discerning. Not everybody who stands up and talks about God knows what he's talking about. Be discerning. And he says, abstain from every form of evil, everything that looks bad. Get away from it. Don't expose yourself to error. You know that? Now, I'm talking here about gross error, theological error. Don't expose yourself to it. Don't, don't listen to it. And then in the end here, you close with just some blessings and admonitions. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole soul spirit and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who caused you is faithful and will also do it. Who keeps you blameless? You or God? Both, but God. God keeps you blameless. God is the one who will make it happen. He'll preserve you. Then he says, brethren, pray for us. Why? What do you, what do you think Paul Juan would pray about? His ministry, not... You know, that everything go well for him and he have a good offering at the next church and all that stuff. He just wanted, wanted he, actually what he prayed, he asked, I think, in Philippians, that utterance be given to him that he be able to preach the gospel. That's what he wanted. And I charge you for the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss, by the way, verse 26. Just closing greetings. But, um, a lot of good stuff in this book. Well, what we'll do next week is pick up with 2 Thessalonians and uh, go on. Because even though Paul wrote them about the day of the Lord, they still had confusion. And he has to write 2 Thessalonians to clear some of that stuff up for them. So we'll pick that up next week. Father, thanks for this time of study. I pray that uh, we'll think about this book. We're grateful to you for everything you've done for us in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.